Hi, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. My name is Isabel Ross, and I'm the coach at Peak Endurance Coaching. Episode 68 is an interview with Rob Preston. Rob is one of Australia's leading navigators and endurance athletes. He started navigation as a kid through orienteering and then went on to compete for Australia for 15 years at the elite level. And also along with his wife, Catherine, they won the World 24-Hour Row Gaining, which is Long Distance Orienteering, Championships in 2016. Rob has also been leading Australian adventure racing teams around the world and has two World Championship medals from the Adventure Racing World Championships. And more recently, Rob and Team Gippsland Adventure, which included his wife, placed third in Eco Challenge Fiji, now being showcased as a 10-part series on Amazon Prime as the world's toughest race. Rob also offers navigation and adventure racing training and more details can be found at his website thoughtsports.com.au forward slash training. Also, if you are interested in trying adventure racing, check out Rob's new event, Explore Gippsland Adventure Race, which will, fingers crossed, premiere in early 2021 when COVID-19 restrictions ease. Go to exploregippsland.com.au. You can also find uh, Rob on Instagram at rob underscore Preston. Do you have injuries or niggles ruining your enjoyment of running and hindering your performance? Running is the perfect exercise, but when it hurts with aches and pains, it's no fun at all. Come in and see the specialists at Health and High Performance where they utilise the latest in technology and experience to help you achieve the results you want and are capable of. So head to healthhp.com.au forward slash run or find them on Instagram health high performance. In these times, these trying times, it's more important than ever to have a structured plan to ensure you maximise your training and maintain your fitness. The benefit of online training is it doesn't matter what state or country you're in or what level of lockdown you're in, I can help you reach your athletic peak. Staying committed to your training is the one thing at the moment that you can actually have control over. If you need an individualised plan, email me, isabel at peakendurancecoaching.com.au to get started. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Rating, reviewing and sharing on socials helps more people find it. Inderdog Times 3, I think that's what it is, gave a five-star rating and writes, it takes a special talent to be an outstanding athlete, have a wealth of knowledge and present it in an interesting way. Thank you so much. That is so kind and absolutely made my day. You can also go to my YouTube channel under my name, Isabel Ross, to see the video recordings of this and other podcasts. Enjoy the interview with Rob. Hi, Rob, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your athletic background and how you got into adventure racing? Sure. And look, I started off uh, as an orienteer, so doing a lot of running and navigation uh, with my family uh, ever since I was a kid. And then okay. I started taking that more seriously in my teenage years and um, went and did a couple of world junior championships and uh, took a while to actually make the, the world senior championships. Uh, but then about 15 years ago, uh, I guess I was getting a little bit um, bored of the elite orienteering scene and looking for a new challenge and uh, someone recommended adventure racing. And it's actually a, a very easy crossover sport because it does involve navigation as well. And most of the a competitive adventure racing team are quite often looking for a good navigator. So having that navigation skill was easy transition into adventure racing and easy to find teams really looking for um, someone to um, sort of share that skill in their 
team. So yeah, it's been um, a long time in endurance sport, but you know, I guess I still feel like I've got a lot to do. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that, it is a long time, but I think that's what endurance sports need really, isn't it? And, um, and so you tend to be the NAV person when you're on a team, do you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, we did just do the world's toughest race, Eco Challenge Fiji, yeah. and um, which you know is going to bring a new buzz to adventure racing. And mm. that was actually one of the few times where I've uh, raced with another world-class navigator. And um, we had a teammate, Aaron Prince from New Zealand. Yeah. And so we shared the navigation, but most of the time uh, I would you know do 90, 95% of that. Um, yeah. throughout a race you yeah, know um <clears throat> that's uh and and was it like difficult terrain for navigating there uh, yes it was uh look the maps are quite large scale uh which means that a lot of detail can be hidden and ah, okay. also quite old maps so the the tracks weren't necessarily you know up to date and villages change and that type of thing but yeah. Uh, we didn't actually leave the tracks as much as we expected. So uh, not stuck in the jungle or the lost worlds of um, Fiji yeah. for days on end. Uh, <laughs> we put it, probably would have preferred there to be a bit more challenge. Um, because correct me variety. if I'm wrong, in, often in adventure racing, you can kind of choose your own course. Yeah, so we have set checkpoints that you need to collect along the way. And then on top of that, there are like course notes, which have out of bounds areas in particular. Okay. And within those parameters, yeah, you can choose which way you want to go. So if it's an area that has um, like long, you know, for instance, you know, 10 kilometers between checkpoints that are um, with no tracks out there, well, you can choose to climb over all the mountains or to yeah. run around all the mountains and, that's the real sort of appeal to the sport is that um, you've got to be physically strong, uh, but then it throws in a bit of strategy as well about um, uh, how will you navigate and also thinking about things about what time of the day you might be at a certain part of the course because navigating at night is actually far harder than oh, the yeah. daytime. So you, you need yeah. to... Um, need to plan accordingly if it's um, night time you, you've got to be a lot more conservative yeah no that's fair enough so um going right back to the beginning what was the application process like to get in yeah so look they had hundreds and hundreds of applications uh it was back at the end of uh, 2018 and uh -huh. we just needed to submit our sporting resume for the five team members and then put together a a 10 or 15 minute video uh, outlining sort of why we wanted to race and our you know, history and experience and also being able to show that you can communicate because of course it was made into a you know, mm. documentary slash reality tv so uh you didn't necessarily get in just based on um on your athletic uh background they did choose um to put in some teams with um a little bit more special interest than um, you know all the regular adventure racing teams that take part in the World Series. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. And and you say five team members. Do, do you is that including the person who is um, at the checkpoints waiting for you and helping you? 
Yeah, that's right. So we had a one-person support crew yeah. and, yeah, they helped um, as we went around the course. And, uh, yeah, look, some races you need to bring a fifth team member, but more often than not, it's, um, it's been made easier you know, for the sport that uh, the race organisers will organise the logistics. Um, yeah. And then we just need to travel with um, the four team members. So um, can you talk us through how it went, like um, building up to the, to the day? So you'd have got to Fiji and then and sort of like how long in advance did you get there? And then uh, how yeah. were you feeling at the start? Uh, we only got there about oh, four or five days before we started. And in that time, there was about three days of um, like compulsory tests or skill testing. Oh, okay. Uh, because it was 66 teams, it was quite a large field and it takes a you know, fair bit of time each um, team to get through all of that along with mm. you know, media interviews. But even without that, you, it takes a lot of time to like pack your gear. You need to do extra food shopping if you haven't brought all of it to the country with you. And then they actually released uh, only small bits of information about the course uh, before we started so again that's a, a different part every race is different uh, but in this case we didn't even know, you know until about three minutes before we started what we were going to be doing for that day you just needed yeah. to I think the night before we got told oh look you'll be gone for 12 to 36 hours and you'll start off on water uh, and pack accordingly and then um, does that make you like really nervous not knowing uh yes uh so <laughs> certainly you know for a course it's going to be five or ten days long mm. uh you need to you, know, you don't want to be thinking about the finish line there's there's yeah. a lot to you know get past before you get to the finish but it does also help to build that mental picture of what the course is going to be like um so you can start to tick it off uh, in this case, we had like five different sections to the race and we only mm. got to see our support crew like four times. So in between each of those. Um, but the hard part was we didn't know what course or what um, sports we were going to be doing until we got to that transition point. Um, oh, so you didn't. So in a normal adventure race, would you get an overview of everything? Quite often you do. Mm. Yeah, more often than not. And so therefore you get like a logistics planner that you can then pack your food yeah. uh, and your you know, shoes for that leg um, and your bikes and prepare that before you start. Uh, in this case, because we had a support crew, they could kind of leave that to be done on the fly. Yeah. But then it does make that um, difficult for like planning your sleep, um, planning to, now, are you going to go really hard in one section or, you know, take it easy because um, you know what's coming up and the next yeah. section is going to be even harder. So, yeah, that was definitely a, a difficult part of um, of EK Challenge. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched it, but I didn't, I didn't realise that that's how it was. It didn't um, click for me. Yeah, that would be yeah, tough. Yeah, I looked at, you know, it's 10, 10 episodes, but there's still so much detail in there that yeah. uh, they just can't show around the the race, um, yeah. you know, particularly the, the race at the front with all the top um, lead teams. And that's probably where we've been getting the most questions is actually about sort of specific details of how the race really unfolded for our yeah. team. Yeah. Yeah. 
So how did it really unfold for your team? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, look, I just had a quick word with my wife about the, the highs and lows of the race just because, you know, it was 12 months ago. And even though yeah. we've recently watched the series, uh, you know, you do start to lose the details. Yes. But uh, look, for us, we actually took it really quite conservatively and uh, we got off to bad start, which wasn't shown on the coverage is that our boat got punctured and I actually read that um when I got online was yeah we're doing some research and I read that and I was thinking I didn't see that in the show <laughs> no so we were like dead last and how did so how did that happen so the boats are have some very sharp <clears throat> points on the front of the um the outriggers on yeah on the side and we were really in closed in this river uh, everyone just sort of went yeah. right from the start. It looked very crowded, yeah. Yeah, there wasn't enough room for everyone and we were just unfortunate to um, have some teams run into us from the side and mm. uh, they were, I guess, quite flimsily made boats yeah. and we needed to stop and repair it. So um, it was a very stressful start and it's yeah. kind of funny how um, things can go not to plan when you've been literally preparing for the last six months for this race and then five minutes in um, the whole team sort of starting to implode and yell at each other as we oh, decide, no. do we yeah. want to stop? Do, are we going to try to keep going? Um, in the end, we decided we needed to prepare, uh, repair it because we were about to go out for another 50 or 60 kilometres in open ocean. Yeah. And we didn't really feel that that was going to be the place to uh, repair. So we actually stopped you know, before we left the river. Uh, but so then we, we had to just make our way through the rest of the field on the, the paddling leg and, um, you know, slowly within 24 hours, I think we were up about into 10th place or something like that and limiting <laughs> our mistakes, passing a few teams that did make some navigation mistakes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, within sort of 36 hours, we were actually quite lucky in terms of uh, there being a storm that needed to... Um, the race got halted right. due to some yep. uh, difficult areas, um, there was some flooding and where we were actually quite lucky was that we were the last team to make it through the, the flooded canyon section before mm. um, the Estonians got, who were good friends with ours, um, they got stuck behind us. So then that actually ended up splitting the field a little bit and um, yeah, we were able to catch back up to the leaders. Um, when the, the race got halted, they ended up having more rest than us. Yes, because that's they, right. Um, we stopped for about 10 hours. We were stopped for about seven hours. So mm. often in uh, adventure racing, you have what's called a dark zone. If the, the paddling is at night time and it's deemed to be uh, dangerous, then mm. the clock doesn't, you don't get a time bonus. You just get more rest. So the faster teams get to an area, have more rest, yeah. which normally it equates to them moving faster for the rest of the you know the next stage yeah yeah no doubt yeah that's fair enough um and so and so when the race started and you're the the teams you know arguing at the start how do you um sort of move on from that (laughs) uh yeah look it was we definitely didn't expect that because all four of us are you know pretty level-headed and Uh, although we had never raced with Aaron before, he was even more experienced than myself. But 
it was kind of funny when you get put under that serious pressure, um, how you're going to deal with it. And in the end, it was um, a case of realising that if we wasted half an hour now repairing the boat, it was quite possibly going to keep us in the race, as yeah. in we won't sink later on. <laughs> and um, so it was kind of made for us a little bit when the boat literally did start sort of going underwater, uh, that we weren't going to be able to keep going. Yeah. We were lucky that we uh, also, we had a basic repair kit, but um, there were some locals nearby who were able to sort of help um, oh, those fishermen and helped us yeah. repair as well. Um, but that was actually really one of the few times in the race where, um, where we had any sort of trouble. So after the first yeah. hour in the race, we actually you know, really got along well as a team and um, didn't make that many mistakes until we did make a navigation mistake on like the second last night, which uh, again, isn't shown in the coverage, but that's where we were in second place that's we right, stopped yep. to have a sleep yep. and got passed by the um, Team Canada. And then we made a navigation mistake after the sleep and that really just compounded um, yeah. our yeah, sort of dropping further behind the lead. And the, the Canadians actually didn't sleep, but then also made a navigation mistake. Um, but then we just weren't able to catch them. We didn't have enough um, time left on the course yeah. really. And that was... Um, that was the difficult part for us in that we were really preparing for a longer race and okay. um, yeah, not being able to see the full course at the oh, start. Course. You're yes. really just um, basing it on little bits of information that get given out at the race briefing, or you might have a you know, word on the side with the race director and he's talking about, Oh, it could be eight and a half days. And then Mark Burnett, oh. the, uh, you know, the inventor of the race is like, oh, it could be nine and a half days and that's if anyone finishes. So you, oh, wow. we're really preparing for, um, for something that was a little bit longer and that's yeah. why we got a little bit more sleep along the way than what um, we might have if we actually knew, you know, the definite finish yeah. line for the race. But I guess it's a, it's a risk you have to take just in case it is longer, so. Yeah, oh, that's right. I mean, we were pretty confident that... Um, that extra sleep was going to pay off later in the race yeah. and that um, we'll be conservative in that way. And, um, but it's, it's always a fine balance between um, getting the minimum amount of sleep that you can still keep moving and make uh, less mistakes yeah. um, than not sleeping at all. And um, yeah, you, you can, you can definitely lose a lot of time and, oh, yeah. um, I can imagine. And, and looking after the health of your team members really is, um, in a yeah. tropical area, um, infections were quite uh, yes. prevalent. And uh, as it was, you kind of needed to get to the end before um, you know, one of your teammates could you know, really have trouble fighting the infections. And, um, and you were saying um, you haven't raced with Aaron before. So how did you come up with the team? Have, obviously, you hadn't raced as a full team like that previously. No, that's correct. Uh, look, so we... We had a, another team member, an Australian, um, who was fortunate enough to get selected in two teams, and he was actually in the, the seventh place team, uh, Team Thunderbolt. Yeah. And so we were sort of happy for him to make that decision, and we needed to find a replacement. And because of the, 
the competition rules meant you could have one overseas uh, oh, team okay. member, so three from the one nation and then one extra. And we considered um, a lot of people in that we didn't make a decision uh, overnight. And Aaron is, um, yeah, he's been around for 20 years. I've been competing against him in orienteering for a long time and also actually raced um, with a lot of his teammates. So often if, uh, if he couldn't make a team or, or race, I actually had filled oh, in for him in different times. Yeah. Um, so we knew his skill set and we knew his personality. And yeah, with, with such a long race, a difficult race and a race that requires such skills. Uh, in, in this case, there was like eight different sports. Mm. Uh, going for someone with more experience was, um, you know, was the key in our mind rather than you know, potentially someone younger with you know, a, a faster runner bigger engine or that type of thing. Um, yeah, we, we needed someone with, um, with the experience and um, yeah, it, it worked out for us, fortunately. Yeah, it sure did. Um, and so <clears throat> how, obviously you do the navigating because you're, that's what you're really experienced at. How do you choose the other team roles? Yeah, that's um, well, a great question and making up a really strong team in adventure racing is, um, you know, is pretty crucial. Like in the end we, we race for five or six days, but it's all that preparation that you put mm. in beforehand that makes so much of a difference. And uh, so look, having someone that's good as a leader, uh, because often when, you know, four people are tired, you really having a democracy doesn't often work if mm. um, no one, you know, really knows what they should be doing. So you need someone to sort of take the lead and say, well, look, no, this is what we're going to do. And that's normally you know, the person with the most experience. And then, um, but also having someone with, you know, very good organization skills and they're not necessarily the same person. Uh, mm. So often the women in the team are, are very good organizers. They're good, mm. good multitaskers. And um, in, you know, in my case, they can certainly, help keep me organized i know that i'm not um <laughs> i'm not the best at every asset of the um, facet of the sport um so often uh having a good organizer is always going to help because you know, it's just one small mistake like yeah putting your bike shoes in the wrong you know, yeah. box means that you could be you know riding in your running shoes or vice versa and things like that yeah uh and then also it's good to have someone with the skills of um working with bikes and then also like the water sport. So if you've got someone that's really experienced on water, then they're often the one who's going to be steering a sailing boat or um, stealing, uh, steering a white water boat. Um, so, and you can also often put them with the, the weaker paddler as well. So it helps sort of balance out the team. So you basically uh, so, all have to be really honest about what you're, what you're good at and not so good at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you see a lot of teams get formed over the internet these days, which yeah. is, is great to get people into the sport. Um, but it's having the humility to actually, you know, admit your, your deficiencies is actually more important than, you know, probably saying what you're really good at. Um, and it's those teams that um, maybe haven't quite formed 
their clear goals or define exactly what level each of their team members are at. Uh, if they've never done a race before, then it can be really hard like that. So, uh, and then once you get into the race as well, it's, there's no point in being the strongest athlete for 90% of the time than if at 10% of the time you, you won't accept help or you mm-hmm. can't you know, communicate that to your team members that, well, actually I'm struggling now. Um, can someone please you know, take my backpack? Or if we don't have a short rest, you know, I'm feeling nauseous, so I'm going to throw up and that's going to slow us down in the long times, in the long run. So those, um, the communication side of it and being, learning how to be humble is, um, mm. is very important as well. Yeah, I can imagine. And so um, how much sleep did you get? During the race, we actually got more sleep in this than say a, a traditional race because um, we had a sleep card they call it. So we needed to sleep five times three hours throughout oh. the race. And so everybody, you kind of you had to do that. Yeah, that's right. So it does make it safer. It makes yeah. it more enjoyable. To be honest, I can um, imagine. <laughs> the sport long enough now to know that you can race on less than three hours a night. Um, mm. We've definitely done it on, you know, one to two hours, but mm. it really then becomes a, a struggle to get through the next, you know, 23 to 22 hours until you get your next sleep. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit more sleep makes it a lot more enjoyable and, and less likely to make mistakes. Um, because we were out there for like, yeah, I think five nights. Um, the only night that we didn't get sleep was the first night and the last night. And that last night, even though we felt like we'd really managed ourselves quite well, we were out on the boat in the outrigger. Mm. And that was like pretty difficult at that time. Um, personally, I was trying to steer the boat and <laughs> steering while I was half asleep um you know wasn't that easy but the team they just kept on paddling we we took a little bit to get into it we started about midnight yeah and then maybe after half an hour an hour we really found our rhythm but um, how long did that section of that paddle take it took us about seven and a half hours oh my god (laughs) whereas um and we caught up an hour and a half on the Canadian team in front of us in that time. And so we really feel like um, we just need a little bit more course and we're going to catch the the remaining half an hour that that they were in front of us. Um, But yeah, like we were some of the slower teams, you know, it would take twice as long on. Yeah. Well, they were actually, um, not able to paddle most of the nights where the weather was, they realized that you know, the, the weather was pretty difficult out there in those outriggers at nighttime. Yeah. And so they were often stopping on some of the islands along the way and, or, or not even starting until the next morning when the conditions were a bit easier. Yeah. And so what did you do for nutrition throughout the race? Uh, yeah. So because we have to, pretty well buy all your food before you start. Uh, a lot of it is uh, like sports specific nutrition. 
though the longer the race, the more you actually want to mm. rely on real foods. Um, but it's probably the most important thing is having variety and yeah. that's like variety of sweet food, variety of savory food, which in the end, the longer the race, the more savory food you end up eating. Yeah. And then you just supplement it with a little bit of sugar when, um, you know, you, you realize that you need a quick pick me up and, but it also needs to be quite lightweight because you know, we could have been out there for you know, a day to two days without getting any resupply. Yeah. Uh, so in that case, you're taking some uh, newer, new dehydrated foods are getting better and better. Uh, mm. So um, we'll take quite a few of those. And then even just simple things like, you know, two minute noodles that you put cold water in is um, sounds delicious. Nice and, <laughs> it is nice and salty, <laughs> and uh, surprisingly, how well it cooks just in your you know, yeah. down the front of your shirt or something like that. Um, but we really didn't have many stops along the way. Um, well, because you be were saying, more food. and and also you're saying you're only seeing your support. You didn't see your support crew that often, so you weren't getting restocked that often. No, exactly. And so when we the support crew. Uh, was available to us then um, Paddy was uh, he'd have a cooked meal there yeah. um, and then often have you know just some sandwiches and things that were easy to take away with us but you know aren't going to last two days in your yeah, backpack that's right. and then try to take some fresh fruit and things like that as well which um, is is a great change but again you know a banana in the backpack doesn't last that long <laughs> either but. I couldn't yuck <laughs> And um, yeah, no, well, uh, that's what I would imagine that nutrition would be a tricky one in, in that situation. <clears throat> so you yeah, said you took learning, yeah. trying out what you're going to take is probably, yeah. you know, one of the key things. So um, yeah, I've, I've found that I can tolerate pre pretty much most things. Um, yeah. So I guess that's quite lucky, but it, um, sometimes you go to a new country and you mm. can't get your favorite flavored, you know, up and go or something like that. So you do need to risk and, and try something new, but Fiji, um, most of their food comes from Australia and New Zealand anyway. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which, which, yeah, that, well, that's lucky. And um, so you said earlier that, you know, you prepared six months for this. How do you train for a race where there's so many different activities that you have to do, sports that you have to do? Yeah, look, that was the difficult part of this race. And, um, even for someone as experienced as me, like people will go, well, was it really the world's toughest race? And <laughs> in terms of the preparation, uh, it, it was by far the hardest that I've done. And that was because you know, I've been in the sport for a long time, yet I've still never done any stand-up paddleboarding because yeah. I like kayaking. I didn't feel the need to learn another sport, but we needed to for this one. And you know, we did just enough training probably to... Uh, get your skill level up, um, but not be you know, really strong at it. Um, yeah. Sports like that you thought might be a small component, but then we literally had paddled for 18 hours in a sailing boat. Um, yeah. And then to find that we've got a seven hour stand up paddleboard leg. And so the teams that really hadn't prepared you know, very much for that at all, you know, they suffered pretty badly on, on the legs that they hadn't prepared for. Um, and then other things like the rope section. Mm. Again, we, we don't get to do that in a lot of races, particularly in Australia. So you really got to make the effort to 
go out to you know a local climbing gym or um, you know we had some friends come out with ropes and you know find a cliff and just go and do some practice but you know it was just enough to get to what I would say a competent level without being you know an expert um, mm. but uh, you're trying to get to you know a competent level we were already experts at some of the um, the skills, fortunately, uh, but to get all those other ones up to scratch, um, it, it took a lot of time. And uh, for us, the outrigger paddling, we had to travel two hours into Melbourne to oh, find wow. an outrigger club. So uh, that takes away a lot of time that you might ordinarily spend on the bike or mm. you know, training on your running. Uh, but in the end, yeah, it's the weaknesses that end up sort of slowing you down more than... Um, yeah, anything else. Well, the, yeah, the strengths build you up. Yeah. And so, so about how many hours a week would you be training? Look, I'm not a huge trainer. Um, I've, I've never had to no, rely on, um, I guess, my background in a long time, but mm. also doing a lot of races, um, which has actually become less and less as a, we've got two young children now. Mm. So I can't rely on that um, base. But... Look, we're still doing 10 to 14 hours and then, you know, maybe if we do, you know, we might back up one weekend to do 24-hour race in, yeah. in one weekend. So if you do that you know, once every couple of months, it starts to add up. Um, but, yeah, look, in terms of people think that you might need to do a lot more than that, but being, um, being healthy and getting to, your, to the start line without having injuries... Mm. Is, is actually more important exactly. and then how to, yeah. um, how to read your body as yeah. the race goes on so in the end you know you could be a professional triathlete who's used to doing 30 to 35 hours a week mm. yet they don't race for longer than eight hours those guys pretty well so um, it gets to night time and you know it's a whole different game if you haven't learned to you know fuel yourself or to yeah. um Know, slow down when you need to. And and do you train at all for sleep deprivation? Is it possible? Uh, look, it is. I, I used to be a shift worker, and ah, that would help. People would say, "Well, yeah." People would say, "Oh, well, that that would be good for your train adventure racing yeah. now." Uh, and I see other people get into the sport and going out on like all night training sessions and things like that. Yeah. Look, that's good for the the mental side and you know mm. knowing that you can do it and you realize that it's it's pretty difficult um even harder not in race conditions i would find like mm. if you're racing you you tend to be um if you're a competitive person it does make it you know relatively easy to go full a full night without sleep yeah um but as i've got older i, I really prefer to look after my body and I definitely don't do any type of sleep deprivation leading up to a race. It's more trying to get more sleep than anything yes. else. Yeah. And that's, that's what I certainly do for, for longer races too, because also training overnight, well, it takes so long to recover from that it's really not worth it. Yeah, exactly. And that's pretty well what I've done my whole career in that um, there's 24 hour row gains, the mm. you know, trail run is only, let's say, only really become popular in the last you know, 10 to 15 years, but Rogaine's have been around a lot longer and yeah. I've won most of them I've, that I've done, but I don't do them that often because 
it takes so long to recover. So I just yeah. prefer to do multiple shorter races um, over that same period and not, you know, risk injury or um, just yeah, yeah, really get yourself um, down because it takes a big toll on the body. So how many of these big adventure races would you do a year? Uh, look, I've done nearly 30 um, in a bit over well, 12 or 13 years or something like that. So I'm normally doing two to three a year. I started oh. off pretty hard when okay. I was a bit younger and did four of them in six months. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, I realised that I probably won't do that many ever again. Um, yeah. I, I got through it, but... Look, if you can have a good build-up, you know, and you can, you know, afford the time off work or, yeah. you know, to be able to go and travel somewhere, then ideally I'd love to do two a year. Um, but you, you're looking at a recovery of, you know, a month or two yeah. or possibly even longer, depending on what you want to get back to. If you want to get back to running, you know, 60-minute orienteering races, well, it'll take a long time to go from that 95 yeah back to 100%. Um, yeah. But whereas I could back up and do 24-hour races sort of relatively easy, but I just don't train that much in between. So you know, there's always yeah. going to be a downside on that you know, yeah. later down the path because you haven't done the, the training to back it up. That's right. Yeah, you can only maintain that for a certain amount of time to, with high-level results. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And so um, obviously you haven't uh, did you, were you able to get in a race at all this year? No, I've done a couple of orienteering races in, mm. uh, in Melbourne in March. And that was literally like the weekend or two weekends before um, yeah. the lockdown started. And then yeah. since then, yeah, I've done nothing. And <laughs> look, you know, I think most people probably say it's been good to have a bit of a break. Um, yeah. But I've had my break really from September That's right. through yeah. to Christmas time because, um, yeah, the race was in Fiji was you know, 12 months ago now. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to racing again, but probably more looking forward to actually being able to travel um, <laughs> overseas uh, and then also put on some um, races of my own. As oh, well, nice. Which, uh, yeah, I've been trying to organise an event in in Gippsland, uh, a 24-hour adventure race, which is part oh. of the National Series, and it's been postponed due to bushfires <laughs> and twice due to um, COVID. So oh, no, no. it hasn't been a great year, but no. we'll, um, we'll set our sights on some events next year. So have you um, applied for next year of the Eco yes, Challenge? Yes, we have. So mm -hmm. we're kind of in that period yeah. of um, waiting yeah. and hoping that our results from last year. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they will. Surely they would just yeah. let you in straight away, wouldn't they? Oh, look, I, I hope so. We still had to put in the application just like everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And, and then we still don't actually know whether it will go ahead. Um, well, they were talking um, March. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it will. I mean, it, it's pretty... Um, but their secondary uh, date was like September, wasn't it? Yeah, November. November, even. yeah. Yeah, which um, personally I'd love to train through summer. Um, I find <laughs> it much easier than yeah. the Victorian winter. Definitely. But then again, um, so next year it's going to be in Patagonia. That's and right. And the conditions there will be vastly different to Fiji. So 
maybe we'll we'll need a Victorian winter to get out <laughs> and um, get used to training in miserable conditions. Uh, I was actually just watching the 2013 um, Eco Challenge in Patagonia and it looked miserable. Yeah, that's right. Look, I've read race reports of um, other races that have been in Patagonia that you know, scare me more than a, you know, than most things. Um, <laughs> a race report without even any pictures. It just <laughs> sounded, um, yeah, vastly different to, like I've raced in um, Alaska and that was yeah. you know, probably the most extreme that I've done. Yeah. And then, yeah, Patagonia, I think will be quite similar to um, what Alaska was with glacier travel. Yes, and, that's right. Um, just being wet and cold probably for a long time. And, and when you are wet and cold for a long time, how do you deal with that? So that's, I guess, where, um, again, if you compare it to being a Tour de France rider with 5% body fat, or mm. um, if, you're un, if you're not, haven't looked after yourself, then you're far more susceptible to, susceptible to get sick along the way. And mm. so that's where that rest, um, it's difficult to rest when it is very cold. Like um, more yeah. often than not, we will actually be sleeping on the course just in like a, a tiny little bivy bag. Yeah. Uh, because if we don't have a support crew, then we have to set up tents in transitions and things mm. like that. And it can be loud, mm. um, not great places to sleep. So, um, then when you're out in the, in the wilderness, you've got to find somewhere that's you know, dry, hopefully not in the wind. Um, so those factors are going to be a lot different to you know, Patagonia, uh, mm. to um, Fiji, where you know, sometimes if it's a nice, warm you know, northern Queensland, you, you literally just lay down on the ground and yeah. have a sleep. And, yeah. um, and that's okay. But uh, this time you'll definitely need sleeping bags and probably put up tents to, to get that rest. Um, but yeah, being cold, um, taking good gear, I guess is probably the main thing, but you're still going to have wet feet and you've got to, um, learn to look after them. And I guess you also just have to learn to, to just deal with it and just move on and not focus. Yeah, on it too that's much. right. Um, mm. you know, once you've got your hood on, uh, in your, and it's really windy down there is, is the other difficult part about Patagonia. Yeah. And uh, when it's like that, it's hard to communicate with your team. So yeah, of course. Uh, then you, I guess you, you, you have to make, you can't take things for granted is that your teammates have heard you know, what's mm. coming up or, you know, I need to have a stop or something like that. And uh, in that case, like if it's at nighttime, you can actually lose your team members if oh, um, wow. yeah, someone's feeling really sleepy, um, yeah. they can get disorientated. So uh, that's you know just a little part of trying to be aware of um, of what your teammates are going through. Um, and you'll have good periods, but you know you're going to have some bad periods yeah. as well. And that's where yeah. you've got to have good team members to look after yeah. you. So if someone, um, if some of the listeners were. Um, thinking about getting into adventure racing, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. So look, we've got some good races in Victoria and hopefully more next year. Um, but look into the adventure one series. So it's a, a national series. Um, right. There's a lot of good races in Queensland, which mm. obviously it's not 
close to um, you know, our core base in Victoria, but there's nothing better than hopping on a plane, just for, <laughs> even if it's for three days to get to Queensland and um, racing some good terrain like that. Um, and then there's also the Adventure Racing World Series, and um, we've got events you know, in about 14 different countries around the world. It changes each year. Uh, and so and anyone can go in those? Yes. I mean, I wouldn't say jump straight to no. <laughs> flying to Patagonia, although yeah. there will be some teams that, you know, with little experience that will be yeah. there next year. But um, in terms of getting into like some sprint races, so that's what we call, you know, from maybe three to six hours. And yeah. the barriers to entry for those events are, are pretty low. You, you need a mountain bike. It doesn't have to be a very expensive one, but it's just got to get you past, you know, an hour of mountain biking. And then uh, having some comfortable shoes, then the, the navigation side is a little bit, but I mean, most of the shorter races, you're just better off giving it a go. And yeah. you're going to learn a lot in your first race or your second race. And then, um, you know, see how it goes with your team members as well before you then take the full commitment to do a 24-hour race or a, a five-day race um, with team members you don't know is, um, you know, is risky. And yeah. look, getting the right teammates is, um, is what makes the sport really so fun and probably why I've been in, in the sport for so long is that I've just always been able to find some really good teammates and, and never had bad experiences to say, oh, no, never again. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... Is, is adventure also, racing really expensive? Look, the longer rate, not if you compare it to an Ironman or something like yeah. that, which, you know, $1,000 for a one-day event, um, yeah. we might be looking at um, $250 to $400 for a weekend race or a 24-hour yeah. race. Uh, and the expedition races, you're probably looking at 1000 to $2,000 for like the five-day race, um, plus travel costs, of course. And you can spend as much money on gear as what you want, but I guess I, I'm always getting questions about gear and you know, I'm often telling people you don't need to have the best. You know, often buying second-hand gear is, is perfectly adequate to get into the sport. And mm. there's a lot of um, friendly and experienced adventure racers out there who will help you with... Um, you know, not going out and wasting your money and you know, even just giving you old backpacks and things like that to get started. Um, yeah. And so what's, what's your race called uh, or will be called once it's eventually up and ready to go? Uh, my event? Uh, yeah. yeah. Explore Gippsland. So yeah, if you have a look, um, what was that? Sorry. Explore Gippsland. Explore Gippsland. Right, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. So people can yeah, uh, look that up. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I'm going to be running some training. Uh, I already do run navigation training. Um, oh, awesome. I haven't done that many of them in the last couple of years because like, I prefer to compete. To, well, yeah. Let's be honest, I'm, I'm still a competitor, but uh, I'll probably be doing quite a bit in the next six months while the actual event space is you know, mm. still a little bit up in the air. And you know, hopefully in Victoria, we'll still be able to do training sessions with 10 people um, yeah. easily so it is a good opportunity to for you know people to get into the sport to come along and you know, do some training 
Uh, and then often actually just meet some new people while you're there because often it might be a little bit hard to find team members, but I've had a lot of people come along to the training camps who then end up racing with each other because they've... Ah, uh, oh, they've made friends there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, and to be honest, like... um, a lot of ultra runners for, for our races, we're expected to bring a map and a compass as part of our mandatory kit. But I'm telling you right now, like 80 to 90% of the ultra runners don't know what to do with it, you know? So even for ultra runners, it's, yeah. it's good to do that training. Absolutely. So I actually do organize some trail runs and um, I'm heavily involved in the, the course marking, but no matter how well you mark a course. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> people get lost and yeah. It, look, it's, it's more than just having navigation skills. It's just being aware of yes. what you're doing and yeah. not just looking at your feet or the heels in front of you. Yeah. You really need to think about um, what's coming up. And you know, I definitely recommend having a look at the course profile and the map yeah. before you go out there to try to get that in your head. Uh, but even not just for races, having the skill of navigation and being confident in the outdoors you're going to enjoy your training sessions so much better and you go find new places. So it's unfortunately it's a skill that's being lost with you know, mm. the aid of smartphones. Yes, um, sadly. But yeah. Sometimes it's great just to leave your phone behind and you know, yeah. go exploring and be confident that you can find your way home, even if you're in unfamiliar terrain. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely you know, am grateful that, I've had a lifetime of doing navigation, but yeah, I, I definitely always encourage um, runners even just to go try the orienteering races, which there's a lot of in Melbourne. Uh, and yeah, there's been um, quite a few Rogaines and I've been myself trying to, you know, learn the navigation for my races and it's, it's hard. So I admire your skill set, but uh, I think it's worthwhile <laughs> doing. Yeah, well, it's like a natural fartlek session as well. Yeah, that's right. You need, you need to slow down to to think about what you're doing, but then those periods in between, you know, you can push yourself running harder. And yeah. so a 45 minute orienteering course um, gives you real physical benefits as well as, um, and yeah. honestly, the time will go by just you know, like yeah. that because um, you're not thinking about, oh, geez, my heart rate's 165 <laughs> or, you know, should I go harder or less or whatever. You're just thinking about the navigation side and next thing you know, you, you know, an hour's yeah. down and you're at the finish. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, I totally agree. That sounds awesome. All right. And um, final question, what was Bear Grylls like? Yeah, look, we didn't spend a lot of time sort of hassling Bear for yeah. pictures before and after the race, but I did get a chance to talk to him the day we finished and when the cameras had been turned off. And he, he honestly is a very um, genuine guy and, I've looked at a lot of things that he's been doing in the last 12 months as well. Yeah. And the work that he does with scouts and um, look, I think he's been great for the, for the show. They did really well to pick him yeah. um, and a great role model really to encourage people to get outside. Yeah. Uh, so look, he definitely has a show side to him as well, but yeah. it's not without you know, backing it up uh, yeah. as well. Like he's um, yeah, he's definitely not, fake at all so um, oh that's good to like, know yeah yeah absolutely like he was interested in what we're doing and yeah. um 
Yeah, uh, there's been, I guess, comments about, oh, wouldn't it be great to see Bear race or something like oh, that? Yeah. How well would he go? Um, yeah. Honestly, we'd love to see that too. Um, and I've got no doubt if he, if he was teamed up with the right teammates, he'd, uh, he has a lot of skills. He'd be able to hold his own. And fitness level, yeah. Um, yeah. But would he be able to keep up with the top 10 team? Um, probably unlikely. But Yeah. You know, that's yeah. what we like to think anyway. <laughs> yeah no that's fair and you're probably right anyway but yeah because oh i don't know i loved watching the show and it was awesome but it looked tough so well done on your awesome result and and for representing australia so well so yeah that was thank you very much yeah that's been great watching you know seeing all our friends and family and you know and just people we don't know get so excited about it yeah. and um, yeah we want to see more people get into the sport and uh, it's it's the pinnacle but it doesn't mean that you can't you know get the same enjoyment and challenges over doing shorter races and yeah same as running longer and shorter races like everyone's got a new challenge um that right. definitely takes you to um some pretty cool places that's what i enjoy most about is the is the travel and the places we go to yeah all right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks for that. I don't know about you, but I just cannot imagine doing a race not knowing what the next leg is going to be. I would find that very stressful. Rob and his team sure did an excellent job, especially coming third. Amazing athletes. I really hope this interview motivated you. Next interview this week in my Week of Eco Challenge podcast is with Baron Dornham. She was part of another Australian team, Team Thunderbolt, who came seventh. Same race, but a completely different perspective. I really hope you enjoy that one too. Have a great week of training and stay safe and well.